0: Well good morning everyone. I'm glad you're joining back here as we continue on in this series really exploring that forgotten but necessary practice of lament and I believe that lament is really needed in our day and age and where we are at currently like historically socially and culturally because here's how I would term our current lives right now. I think that we are living in a space of disruption. I think that's what kind of we are living through right where things don't seem to fit where things are new and different and difficult and we are just living in a space of disruption. And disruption can be both good and bad, right? Because in disruption, you can actually develop like new habits, new ways of seeing things, new ways of even behaving and believing and moving forward. Some of you might have experienced this, right? You might have actually realized in this season the importance of face-to-face relationships and slowing down a little bit and those sort of things. But spaces of disruption can also go the other way because while it might be likely that we realize the importance of face-to-face relationships, it's also just as likely in spaces of disruption we just watch way too much Netflix or whatever. That disruption can be both good and bad. And so, today, in a space of disruption, I actually do want to offer to you or invite you into actually a new way of seeing some things, specifically to disrupt our current idea of how we view sin. Because here's what I believe I believe that lament needs us to name sin, but it actually does this in an expanded way, or to put it a little bit differently. I think what has happened, especially in our day and age, is that we have adopted an individualized privatized, and just a personal view of sin. And that sin in lament is so much bigger than just this. And so today, in a space of disruption, I actually want to disrupt some of our ideas around sin that are not biblical, that are not helpful, and they're certainly not founded in lament and in this book that we are looking through, the book of Lamentations. So today, I want to kind of expand our kind of ideas. So it's going to be a little bit nerdy. It's going to be a little bit challenging in spaces, but I believe that we need that. So today, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Lamentations chapter 3, which is where we're going to be today. I want to begin again in verse 1, and we're going to see some of the same themes that we've seen throughout the last few weeks, because really, uh, each of these weeks that we are working through, they all build on one another. They all are interconnected, and so we're going to see those themes of courageous naming. We're going to see some really dark and difficult things being uh, accused to God or being questioned to God. We're going to see some of that tension holding that we saw last week. I want to begin with just reading in verse 1. So we read this in verse 1. It says this, the speaker calling out to God. It says, I am the one who has seen the afflictions that have come from the rod of the Lord's anger. He has led me into darkness, shutting out all light. He has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. Or in verse 7 and 8, we read again of these kind of accusations. It says this, He has walled me in and I cannot escape. He has bound me in heavy chains. And though I cry and I shout, he has shut out my prayers. Or again in verse 10 and 11. These are some real raw brutal kind of things to be sharing it says this that he is hidden like a bear or a lion waiting to attack me. He has dragged me off the path and torn me in pieces leaving me helpless and devastated or in verses 16 to 18 we read again really raw and really honest kind of sharing with God It says this that God has made me chew on gravel he has rolled me in the dust. Peace has been stripped away and I have forgotten what prosperity is. I cry out and my splendor is gone. Everything I had hoped from from the Lord is lost. And so in Lamentations 3, we are again seeing some of the same themes again from Lamentations 1 and 2. And while most of us do not read Hebrew, here's what's going on in this. Because unless you read Hebrew, you actually won't notice this. That in Lamentations 1, 2, and 3, this is the structure of the poem that we're reading. They're actually an acrostic actually. So what this means is that each verse represents one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So in English, it would be like verse 1 is A, verse 2 is B, verse 3 is C, and so on and so on. But what we see in actually chapter 3 is this pattern of A, B, C, D is actually expanded. It's actually uh, intensified. So what happens in chapters 1 and 2 is that there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, so there are 22 verses, one for each of the letters. And you would pick up this instantly if you're reading in Hebrew. Well, then what we see in chapter 3 is an intensification of this pattern, of this structure. There's actually 66 verses, so it's patterns of three. You know, um, the first letter A would be three times, three verses, and it continues on and on. And the reason I bring this up is because this matters for us to understand. It's like this structure gives space for lament, actually. That when we hear these deep cries out to God that we were just reading, that this very structured kind of uh, approach to the poem gives space for the lament. Delbert Hiller, he puts it this way. He says, in Lamentations... The impression is rather of a boundless grief, an overflowing emotion whose expression benefits from the limits imposed by a confining across six, as from the rather tightly fixed metrical pattern. He's saying this tight little pattern gives space for the lament. And then what we see after we hear some of this crying out in the beginning of Lamentations 3, we actually see again a shift. This is like last week. right? We see another shift and we hear actually some of the most hopeful or really the only really hopeful verses in Lamentations. And these are the verses that likely, if you're familiar of any of them, these are the ones you're familiar with. And so we read this. I want to begin reading in verse 21. It says this, Yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. This is the narrator speaking. Yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. That the uh, the faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is thy faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. Or as I remembered, they are new every morning. And it continues, and it says this, I will say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who depend on him and to those who search for him. It is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. It is good for the people to submit at an early age to the yoke of his discipline. Let them sit alone in silence beneath the Lord's demands. And many of these verses are incredibly encouraging. They're incredibly uplifting. They're incredibly hopeful. But again, just to remind ourselves of last week, these are actually painting a different perspective than some of the previous verses. That if you pay attention, there's actually some, I don't know, opposing ideas within it. Just listen to this. It says this, if you read the verses carefully. It says, uh, it is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. Or it says in verse 28, this is the narrator speaking, let them sit alone in silence beneath the Lord's demands. Let me just ask you an obvious question. Has that happened in this book, actually? Has anyone sat quietly and silent? No, this book actually is people crying out to God. So again, just like last week, we are seeing different perspectives and narratives going on. And I think that this matters for us to just realize that there is that complexity still within this book. But then today, today I want to focus in on verse 33, really. And to really start to expand this idea of sin that I talked about in the very beginning. That really we need to actually have a different view of sin than we currently do. So I want to read to you. Starting in verse uh, 31, and then really focusing in on verse 33, because it raises a question I think many of us have been asking. Like, is God just? Is this fair? Is what is going on appropriate? I think we've been asking that question. If you pay attention to the cries of the people. So we read this. For no one is abandoned by the Lord forever, that though he brings grief, he also shows compassion because of the greatness of his unfailing love. It says this in verse 33. For he does not enjoy hurting people or causing them sorrow. It says that God does not enjoy hurting people or causing them sorrow. I think the obvious question then is this, is then why are the Israelite people going through what they are going through, right? That if God does not enjoy causing sorrow or suffering to people, why is it that they are going through this? Why is it that they cry out that, God, you are making me eat gravel or dust, right, as we just read? Why is it so raw and so hurtful to people? I think that's what we need to kind of wrestle with. And I think... The obvious answer that many of us would like to say, and I think it's a true answer, is that people are going through this suffering and these consequences because of sin. Because hopefully you can agree with me on this, that sin has consequences. That sin is real, it is dangerous, it is damaging, and it has consequences. So why is it that even though God does not want to see suffering, that the people are going through this? It's because of sin. In fact, it actually gets a little bit clearer if we continue reading on in Lamentations Um, verses 34 to 36, we're just going to continue following on the passage, it says this, for God does not enjoy hurting people or causing them to sorrow. He says this though, if people crush underfoot all the prisoners of the land, if they deprive others of their rights in defiance of the most high, if they twist justice in the courts, doesn't the Lord see all these things? If they twist justice in the courts, doesn't the Lord see all these things? what the narrator is raising is just this, that it is simply unjust for God to turn a blind eye to injustice. It is not good. It is not justice. It is not kind for God to see evil and then to do nothing. The narrator is raising the fact that even though God doesn't want to cause suffering or hurt, it is not fair to allow oppression injustice, and evil to continue to be moving forward or to continue to run rampant, that there needs to be consequences or judgment or some sort of action on God's part, that if God is a God of justice, and I believe he is, that he can't sit idly by while injustice is happening. And this, though, leads us to our idea of sin. Because I would like to suggest to you that in our current day and age, the way that we think of sin is just this. We only think of sin in terms of what we have personally, intentionally done. We think of sin in terms of our own privatized and personal actions. And this is a problem, because this isn't actually how lamentations view sin. It isn't how the Bible views sin. It is how our world, if we ever get around to talking about sin, talks about it. So I want to explain and expand this idea that we think of sin in a privatized and personalized way. I want to explain where it came from historically and then why it's a problem biblically. And this will be a bit nerdy, but it's okay to have a nerdy Sunday every now and then. So here's what happened historically, is that historically in the Western world, is that we have begun with the assumption that the individual is the center of everything. This is like the running assumption below everything that's going on. We just agree that the individual is the starting point. And what I want to suggest to you is that this starting point is actually wrong. That this starting point isn't biblical. That this starting point needs to be actually kind of washed away. That we don't begin with just the idolization of the individual. That what the Bible begins with, what the Bible begins with isn't the idolization of the individual. What the Bible begins with is this. Is that yes, we are individuals and personal. But we are set in an interconnected web of relationships that we are responsible for. Or to put it differently. What I want to suggest to you is that you're responsible for far more than just your own individual actions. That's what I want to suggest to you. That you're actually responsible for far more than just your own individual actions. And I know I know that this can be a different way of seeing things because this isn't how our world sees things. This isn't how our world functions. We start with our individual rights and freedoms, but that's not where the Bible starts. And so to show you this, I want to continue working through uh, Lamentations, uh, chapter three and some new verses because we're going to start to see how really the Bible doesn't emphasize the individual at the expense of the collective or the corporate world, or to put it differently, that there is both corporate and collective sin. So I want to read in verse 41. I want to pick it up there and I want to continue to explore this idea. It says this, um, we read this, and this is the narrator speaking, or who we would believe is the prophet Jeremiah, uh, that he's the traditional thought to be the author of this, of this book. And I agree with that. And I think it's the right way to move forward. And he says this, Let us lift up our hands and our hearts and to God in heaven and say, we have sinned and rebelled and you have not forgiven us. You have engulfed us with your anger, chased us down and slaughtered us without mercy. You have hidden yourself in a cloud so our prayers cannot reach you. You have discarded us as refuge and garbage among the nations. Some pretty harsh kind of statements in there, right? You have discarded us as refuge and garbage among the nations. But I want to read it again and just pay attention really deeply to how he talks, to the grammar of what he says. says this, let us lift up our hearts and hands to God and say, we have sinned and we have rebelled and you have not forgiven us. So in this passage, how does Jeremiah talk? What does he say? He says this, he says, we have sinned. We have rebelled. You have not forgiven us. You have engulfed us in anger. Now follow with me, that when Jeremiah speaks, he identifies himself with the larger group or nation that he is a part of. And I want to say this again, because this matters. That Jeremiah, when he speaks, he is actually identifying himself with the larger group or nation that he is a part of. Because he says, we have sinned. We have rebelled. That when he talks about sin, He doesn't talk about it in just individualized ways. He actually talks about it in collective and corporate ways. And this really matters because follow with me. Let's ask an obvious question. When Jeremiah says, we have sinned and we have rebelled, has Jeremiah actually personally, individually sinned? Has he been unfaithful to God? Has he actually rejected God and not followed God's ways? And the answer to that is no, no. Jeremiah has actually been, if you go and read the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah has actually been the only really faithful person. He's been faithfully there, being obedient to God, calling out injustice, and asking God's people to do the right thing. Jeremiah has been faithful. He hasn't been sinning and turning his back on God. And yet, what does he say? He says, we have sinned. We have rebelled. Jeremiah reveals to us that there is both a personal aspect to sin and a corporate or collective aspect to sin. Or to put it differently, that you are responsible for not only what you individually do, but also for what your community, the corporate world around you, the bigger world around you does. That we have both personal responsibility and larger responsibility. And this matters immensely. Because if we are going to learn to lament, what we need to do is to lament not only our own personal sins, but the corporate sins around us. Soon Cheng Ra puts it this way. He says, while Jeremiah emphasizes with the suffering of his community, his personal lament offered in Lamentations 3 says this does not necessarily arise out of a personal culpability in the sin that led to the fall of Jerusalem. In fact, Jeremiah's voice would have been the one voice that remained faithful to God's word. He says the one individual in exile and the exile story that can claim innocence is the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah faithfully spoke Yahweh's words and remained faithful both to Yahweh and to the covenant. Yet Jeremiah claims a personal connection to the sins of his community. He experiences the same suffering as his community and he participates in a corporate call for repentance. Says this, he says this, what affected Jerusalem on a corporate level has affected Jeremiah on an individual level. He says he emphasizes to the point of offering a confession committed by the community. And he, as he offers up a confession, he speaks corporately on behalf of the sufferers. And this, This is what I would like to suggest you we never do in the West. We never offer repentance or confession for things we don't do. We barely offer repentance, confessions for the things we actually do. We don't then offer confession and repentance for larger things. But that's what Jeremiah invites us into. That when we lament, follow with me, we need to lament not only our personal individual sins, but also the more corporate, systemic, collective communal sins that we are a part of. We need to have a bigger view of sin than we do because sin is just that damaging and just that real and we need to be able to name it so that we can confess it and repent from it and ultimately be healed from it. What I want to invite you into today is a different way of seeing sin that is not only just personal, it is also collective or communal. And to give you an idea of what this looks like practically because I know that this can be a different way to see things. It can be a kind of a shift. We are just formed so hyper-individualized that we have no other way of seeing things. I want to explain to you practically in two ways or two examples of how I continue to actually wrestle with some of the corporate or communal collective sin And two examples of this. And they are with my family and they are with us as a church. So I'm going to give you two examples here uh, to help us to kind of maybe have this idea of collective sin that we're responsible to and for the communities that we're a part of, like the larger groups, a little bit more practically. So here's an example of how this works. I think that most parents would agree that you end up apologizing for your kids. Any parents just want to say amen to that, that you do that? And here's what's kind of funny about it, if you think about it, that you apologize for your kids, right? even when you have not individually actually done something. How many of you have done this? Your kids run into someone, and you say, oh, I'm so sorry. But you didn't run into someone. You didn't do that. But yet you still offer a confession and an apology on their behalf. Give me a quick example. Uh, Last week was Halloween. And one of our neighbors uh, got all these beautiful like bags of candy and they gave them over the fence to our kids because they weren't opening up their home for Halloween. But they wanted to make sure our kids got some candy, which I just thought was beautiful and so sweet and wonderful. And so I'm working out in the backyard and Asher grabs this candy and he runs over to me and he's so excited. Asher, if you know him at all, he's the most oblivious of our children, right? And he was just like so excited. He's like, dad, best day ever, so amazing. He's like, look at all this candy. This is so great. This is so good. I said, oh, Asher, that's amazing. Did you say thank you? And he said, What? (laughs) And it just dawned on him that literally what he had done was grab the candy and run to tell me about the candy. He never said thank you. He never did any of that. So what do we do as good parents? You know, we walked over to our neighbors and I said, I'm so sorry. And Asher, you know, thanked them. And they know Asher, so they thought it was really quite funny. They're like, oh, we saw he was so excited and he ran right over to you and we just said thank you. But here's my question. Why did I do that? Why did I say I'm sorry when I didn't individually do it? Because I still think that there are some senses and places where we realize that when we are deeply connected to someone, we are still in some way, shape, or form responsible for them. Even if we didn't personally actually commit an act. Right? I didn't say, you know, not thank you. I didn't uh, become ungrateful. Right? But I still apologize. Right? Because we are some way responsible to the communities or the relationships that we have. Right? I think we get that with families. Here's another place where we hopefully can get this. We get it with the larger places that we are a part of. But for me, it's for the church. Because here, can we just be real with this? Churches have and continue to, in spaces, hurt people. This happens, okay? Because we're all broken and imperfect. But here's what sometimes happens is I will sit with someone in my office and they will share with me, you know, how churches have hurt them or even how this church has hurt them. I sat with someone once and they shared with me how people had actually said they weren't welcome and that they were rejected and they should never come back. And that really broke my heart. But you want to know what I didn't say to them? I didn't turn to this person who was crying and just really hurt by this. I didn't say to them, yeah, but like I didn't say that. So like, I don't know why you're here talking with me. That wasn't me, right? that's not what I did. What did I do? I would have said, I said, honestly, I just said, I'm so sorry. I said, this is wrong. This should never have happened. I apologized, even though I never committed the actual act myself. This is what we need to get in our heads and in our minds, that there is a bigger and more expansive view of sin. This is why. This is why I will continue to apologize for the church at large. This is not because I'm trying to be politically correct. This is because I'm a Christian. And Christians realize that sin is so deep and damaging that it affects us not only personally, but also corporately, collectively, communally. And we need to apologize and confess to both. We need to apologize and confess to both. But what we've done in the West is we've reduced sin to just what we personally intentionally do to the person in front of us. So that if we ever get around to confessing and to repenting, it's only for individual acts, not for the larger systemic corporate collective things that are going on. But that's not what we see in the book of Lamentations. That's not what we see with the prophet Jeremiah. We read him actually addressing and confessing things that he never did. He says, we have sinned, we have rebelled, even though he had not sinned and even though he had not rebelled. He has a deeper and a bigger view of sin that we need to regain. Because there is no way that we will ever find healing and restoration while we continue to narrow the damage of what sin really is. We need to adopt a more biblical view. We need to get rid of the hyper-individualism. We need to actually enter into the biblical view of lament. Again, Sun chang ra you should just buy his book. And he's going to be speaking to us next week. I'm so excited for this. He says this. He says, corporate sin is often denied and dismissed by Western culture's hyper-individualism. This is absolutely true. Corporate sin is often denied and dismissed by Western culture's hyperindividualism. He says this reflects a form of theological liberalism. He says this reflects a form of theological liberalism dependent on cultural norms and one's own experience to determine how we understand truth. He says sin can be defined by cultural norms and by one's own individual experience. He says by acquiescing to the cultural norm of hyper-individualism, personal and individual responsibility for structural and corporate sin is denied. And this is what we are seeing in our world all over the place. We are denying corporate and structural sin and we need to regain it so that we can actually confess it and repent from it and change from it and then find healing from it. Because God, when he begins to judge the people in Jerusalem, follow with me, he judges them as a people, as a nation. That's what's happening here in Lamentations. There is the corporate collective nature to sin. So what does this mean for us all? Well, here's my main point for today. And this may be a new idea for you, but I think it's a very old idea that we need to regain. Here's what um, my main idea is for today. It's just this, that corporate sin must be acknowledged. That collective sin must be acknowledged. That communal sin must be acknowledged. We cannot just reduce sin to what we have personally, privately done. It is so much bigger and more damaging than that, and we need to respond to that. And this actually is a theme not only just in Lamentations, it's a theme throughout the Bible. Right? And I think as Christians, we should understand this, really, that we are connected to far more than we realize, that we're responsible both to the people before us and the people who will come after us. Right? We should get this, because aren't we right now suffering the effects of Adam's sin, you know, generations and generations ago? That's what we read in the Bible. What we also see is people like Daniel and Nehemiah confessing sins that they have never done. What we also read is in the book of Psalms, realizing that sin, it is lasting, and is damaging, and actually has much more of an effect than we realize. We read this, for example, in Psalm 106, it says, like our ancestors, we have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly. There's a connection between the past and our actions today. Or just, I don't know, pay attention to the Lord's Prayer. What do we pray? Right? Forgive us our trespasses, forgive us our sins. And when we say our in there, it is not individualized, it's plural. It could forgive us our sins. There is a collective communal nature that we need to regain and realize so that we can confess, so that we can repent, so that we can see transformation and healing and really this idea of collective and communal sin, we should really get if we pay attention to Jesus. Because in Jesus, don't we see him taking on sin that wasn't his? Right? All of our sins that he never earned, that he never acted, and yet we find forgiveness because of that. So what does this all mean for us today? What this means is this, okay? That personal sin is real and it needs to be named, but so does corporate and collective sin. Both of these need to be renamed. We need to hold both of these um, in the reality of our world. So practically, practically then, what does this mean for us? Because I know for some of us, this is a little bit of a shift. This isn't how we often think. We are trained to just think about our own individual needs and wants and that we're just responsible for that. So today, I want to give you three steps again to help to try to live into this deeper understanding of what sin is so that we can find a deeper understanding of healing and restoration. And the three steps are really simple, actually. They are submitting, they are listening, and they are confessing. And these are going to sound similar like the last two weeks because, honestly, all these weeks are interconnected and they build on one another and the themes continue. I want to invite you really to submit, to listen, and to confess. So first, submission. I want to read to you some of the verses that we read already because I think they give us a really good next step and they remind us of something that matters. It says this, So it is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. And it is good for people to submit at an early age to the yoke of his discipline. Let them sit alone in silence beneath the Lord's commands. Let them lie down in the dust and let there be hope at last. Let them turn the other cheek to those who strike them and let them accept the insults of their enemies. This is where the prophet is speaking, this is what we must do. And I think here the theme that is in all of these verses is really just submission. It's submission that we need to sit and submit to God, that we actually need to put ourselves not in charge, but to put him in charge. So what this means for us then is that we need to submit and then also be able to name the areas that we are sinful, that we are contributing to a larger sin, to not just say we are privatized and individual and we have no responsibility to the community or the people around us, that there is more to it. I think we need to submit to God. Listen to that verse. It says, it is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. It is good for people to submit at an early age. And I think we need to regain this. What I really th- believe that we need to do is we need to learn to submit to God and to realize that we are responsible for far more than our world says. That's what I wanna to suggest you to as the first step, that we need to submit to God, realizing that we are responsible for far more than our world says. And then once we learn to submit, the second thing I wanna invite us into is actually listening. It's listening. Because I just believe that before we can confess corporate sin, before we can confess collective or communal sin, we first need to listen to those who have been hurt by the consequences of sin. I think that's what we need to do. And this is really what we see in Lamentations, actually, is that what Jeremiah is doing in the book of Lamentations, follow with me, is he is centering voices from the margins. That's what he's doing. Remember, when the empire left, they left behind anybody that they thought wasn't a threat. This is all the women, the frail, the weak, the sick. These are people that nobody paid attention to. And what is Jeremiah doing? He is centering those voices, those people who are bearing the suffering and the consequences of other people's sins. That's the voices he is really raising to us. And what Jeremiah does is his heart gets so attuned to the cries from the margins that his heart breaks with their heart. Listen to this verse. It says this, my tears flow endlessly. They will not stop until the Lord looks down from heaven and sees. He says, this is Jeremiah. My heart is breaking over the fate of all the women of Jerusalem. His heart gets so attuned to the hurts of other people. And I think this is what we need. This is why I even challenged you last week to sit and to listen to voices that are different than you. Because we need to be listening to the voices and the hurts of those who are around us. We need to be centering those voices, and we need to be listening in a deeper place. So what this means for us is that if we want to confess the sin of racism, and we should, it means we then need to center the voices of people who are black, indigenous, or people of color. What this means is that if we want to confess and name the sin of greed, which we should, it means we actually need to center the voices of children in Malaysia who are suffering because of our insatiable need for cheap, disposable goods. What this means is that if we want to confess the sin of like, shame and stigma and exclusion, that we need to center the voices of those who are suffering from mental health and addiction and whatever else. We need to listen to other voices. Because without listening, there can be no confessing. Let me say that again. That without listening, there can be no confessing. And this is why I think in the Western church, we have not done confession well. They've been cheap confessions, not true confessions, because we haven't listened. Again, Sung che Ra, he says this. He says the term justice is too casually thrown about without the corresponding sacrifice. He says we want the popularity associated with being justice activists, but we don't want to lament alongside those who suffer. We don't want to sit and to listen, but we need to. So first... First, we need to submit to God and realize that sin is bigger and deeper and darker than we realized. And then secondly, secondly, we need to listen. And then thirdly, I think we need to confess. I think we need to confess the sins that we are collectively and corporately a part of. I think we need to learn to listen, but then actually confess. Because this is what we see with Jeremiah. Listen to what he says. He says, instead, let us test and examine our ways. Let us turn back to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven, saying we have sinned and rebelled and you have not forgiven us. He has a personal response to corporate sins that he has not committed. I think that's what we need to regain. I think we actually need to regain a deeper and a bigger and a wider view of sin than we've ever had before. I think if we're going to actually start to tackle some of the really big and difficult problems in our world, it begins by not only addressing sin individually, but also corporately, collectively, communally in a bigger way. Again, Sun Chang Ra, and I know I quote him a lot it's because he has really impacted me. And this is my last quote for today. He says this, he says, repentance and confession are not simply offered for individual sins, but also for the sins of the community. He says to move from the place of lament to the possibility of restoration. Confession needs to be part of the equation. We cannot move to restoration with skipping confession. He says this though, confession cannot be skipped in lament in order to get to the quick and easy solutions. But Lamentations 3 reminds us that confessions should be offered not only for an individual level, but also for a corporate level. He says, the reality of corporate sin requires the power of corporate confession. And as the nation of Israel sinned collectively before God, they must now offer a collective confession. Recognition of corporate sin must lead to corporate confession. This is why I have and will continue to offer confession on behalf of the church. Because I believe that this is the path to restoration. I believe that this is what we see with Jeremiah. This is what we need to see in our lives. That lament invites us to lament not only personal sins, but collective ones as well. So what's my main idea today? My main idea is kind of a disruptive one, maybe even a new one. It's that collective sin must be acknowledged. Corporate sin must be acknowledged. Communal sin must be acknowledged. That yes, sin is personal, but it is never purely individual or privatized. And then, practically, what does this mean for us today? I want to invite you to actually go through those three steps of submitting to God and just sitting with this, of then listening to other voices and centering them, and then, thirdly, to actually offer confession. But practically, then, what is my challenge? Here's my challenge for today. I want to invite you to take 15 or 20 minutes this week, even maybe today, and to just do this. I want to invite you to just sit with the Holy Spirit and to let him guide you, convict you, and prompt you to listen to the right voices. That's what I want to invite you to do. I want to invite you to just sit with the Holy Spirit, sit in silence and just let him guide you, maybe even convict you because there are things we need to name and to prompt you to be listening to the right voices so that we can offer repentance, so that we can confess, so that we can find the healing and restoration that God has, but that never happens by skipping past confession. And especially it doesn't happen through skipping past corporate sin as well. So today I want to invite you to do this and to just sit with the Holy Spirit to let him guide you because I believe that this is where we need to be opened up to. This is where we need to regain some biblical perspective. This is where we need to regain the lost art of lament. And so with that, would you join with me in prayer today? God, I pray. I pray a strong prayer. I pray that you would convict us of the areas that we need to repent. I pray that you would convict us of the areas that we need to confess. I pray that you would convict us of the ongoing areas that we are involved in that we need to change from. I pray, God, would you open up our eyes to see that the reality that sin is so much bigger and deeper and more difficult than just the individualized notions that we have of it. I pray, God, would we have courage to be able to sit with your Holy Spirit. I pray, God, we would have courage to listen to voices, and I pray, God, that we would have the courage to then confess so that we might continue to move through this path of lamentations together, so that at the end we might find new hope, new meaning, new reconciliation, new life. And I pray that it all happens in and through you leading us. And I pray this all in the wonderful name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen.